an inerrant word, inerrant in the original languages in which it was given to us. Um, And we have the promise and faithful translations of the original language that this remains to us, the word of God, the authoritative word of God, uh, to which we must submit um, and believe as well. So listen reverently and carefully as I read uh, God's word to you, and he is the one who speaks uh, through it. Psalm 13. For the choir director, a psalm of David. How long, O Lord, wilt thou forget me forever? How long wilt thou hide thy face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul having sorrow in my heart all the day? How long will my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord, my God. Enlighten my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say, I have overcome him. Lest my adversaries rejoice when I am shaken. But, I have trusted in thy loving kindness. My heart shall rejoice in thy salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Amen. Pray with me. O Lord, you have indeed dealt bountifully with us in uh, times past, indeed throughout our lives, each one of us who is a Christian. And we ask that you would deal bountifully with us now uh, through this message from your word. We ask that you, Lord Jesus, would be our preacher. ask that you, Holy Spirit, would apply to us uh, the things that uh, are said, that are in accordance with your written word, and we pray that you would illumine our minds. Give myself and those who are listening to me uh, deeper insights into uh, this passage of Scripture and its import and its application in our lives in coming days ahead. We ask this for your glory, for our good, and in Jesus' name. Amen. Kids, uh, perhaps you have heard your parents or perhaps somebody else uh, say something like this. Uh, It's a common phrase that you uh, don't hear so much these days uh, as perhaps in uh, some uh, years ago when I was growing up, but you still hear it, and that is, honesty is the best policy. It basically means you need to tell the truth. Uh, you need to tell people that you're talking to uh, what you're, what's going on, what, what is actually true. Um, and that's a, it's not a biblical phrase, honesty is the best policy, but it is certainly a biblical idea. We are, as Christians, to be people of integrity. That's a fancy word for we need to be honest and truthful. Uh, And that is something that Christians are to be known by because 
God himself is the truth, and we are to imitate God. And in this moral way, uh, we, by being honest, by telling the truth. And the fact is we are not only supposed to be and required by God and his word to be truthful and honest in our conversations with others around us in this world, but the fact of the matter is we are supposed to be and are required to be truthful to God as well, and particularly to God, because he sees what's actually going on in our hearts. And so we can't hide the truth from him anyway in terms of what we're thinking or feeling. Uh, others around us, we can perhaps hide the truth from them so they don't know what's going on. And our words might be say one thing, but our heart might be saying another, and they won't know any better, perhaps. But God is different. He knows what we are thinking at all times and what we are feeling. And so we can't hide the truth from him. So it's particularly important that we be honest to God. And this passage, this psalm, makes that point through the example of David and the way he prayed to God, as you'll see in a moment. Um, the superscription uh, that I read uh, at the front end of the psalm uh, does attribute the psalm to David, and we have no reason to doubt that David is, in fact, its author. There were times past when I was a little less certain of Davidic authorship of all the psalms that said uh, Le David, which means two or four or according to David, but I am uh, now uh, quite confident uh, uh, in the last few years that, in fact, David did write all the ones that are ascribed to him and perhaps some others as well that weren't. At any rate, um, we can, we, as we read the psalm, we can learn from the psalm, we can glean from the psalm some of the, at least a, a little bit of the circumstances that David faced when he wrote this psalm. Uh, as is so often the case in uh, David's psalms, the ones that are ascribed to him, um, especially in the first 40 or so uh, in the Psalter, Psalms in the Psalter, uh, David is experiencing some rather grave, actually quite grave, affliction. Uh, we don't know what it is, um, but we do know that this affliction that David is experiencing precipitated the writing of this psalm caused him to write it. Uh, and it was an affliction, whatever it was, that may, was made worse by the way God had responded to his affliction up to this point in time, as he's beginning to write the psalm. Whatever uh, it was, whatever the affliction was, things had gotten so bad that David was on the verge of almost utter despair. He was despondent. He was almost at the end of his spiritual rope. And so he sets about writing how he feels a prayer to God, a psalm, the one before us here. There are two uh, major points that I want to bring to your attention from the psalm. First is this. You need to be honest with God in the midst of your trials. And secondly, you need to continually trust God in the midst of your trials. You need to be honest with God, and you need to continually trust God in the midst of your trials. First of all, you and I need to be honest with God. As I already indicated to the children, this psalm makes that point through the example of David. 
And first of all, we need to be honest about the way things are, the situation at hand. And secondly, and we'll get to this in a few moments, we need to be honest with God about the way we are feeling and what we are thinking. But first, we need to be honest with God about our circumstances as we perceive them. David certainly was in this psalm. We read in verse 1 there, he tells God that uh, he feels as if God has forgotten him and hidden his face, which is a way of saying hidden his kindness uh, from him. Figuratively speaking, uh, he has withheld his help and his aid from David, which was actually, in a sense, true, at least up to the time uh, before this was penned, Uh, God had not answered, at least certainly not the way David uh, had hoped, uh, his prayers for deliverance. And so there was a sense in which God had withheld his help from David and his aid from David uh, up to this point. And David longed, because of the severity of his affliction, to get relief from it. But the Lord had so far refused to give him that relief, at least the relief that he wanted specifically. All of us who have walked with the Lord for any length of time um, have experienced this type of situation, along with the frustrations that go with that kind of a situation, where you pray for prayers and don't get the answers uh, or deliverance that you want from some affliction that you're experiencing. And also, along with those uh, frustrating circumstances uh, comes the temptation to doubt God. Perhaps you're experiencing similar feelings and thoughts right now. Perhaps you, like many of us, have repeatedly asked God for a return to normal. Can we get our lives back to what they were a few months back? And God hasn't granted that request, with at least not with a yes. Perhaps you're feeling as if God has overlooked you, your plight, your troubles. David surely knew of God's promise to believers that he would never, ever leave or forsake them. That prayer was, uh, that, uh, that promise was uttered uh, by God, first of all, to Joshua and to all of Israel in Joshua's day. Uh, and that prayer, that uh, promise rather, continued to apply to all of God's people, including David and including you and me. God has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. And that applies again to all believers. And this is a promise that David uh, almost certainly confidently asserted was true prior to this trial that he's experiencing here. But now, as you can hear from the tone of his pen, I'll put it that way, now David's faith in that promise that God would not leave him or forsake him was being sorely tested by his circumstances. As perhaps... Um, yours are being sorely tested by your circumstances. David told God, uh, continuing his honest speaking to God, in addition to feeling as if God had forgotten him and hidden his face from me, he goes on to tell God that he uh, was is taking counsel in his soul. 
in verse 2, first part of verse 2. This is another way of saying, David saying, his thoughts were in turmoil. And he's telling God that using this, um, this language. He doesn't understand why God won't grant him relief. It seems perfectly reasonable to him that he should experience relief from what he's suffering, whatever it is, injustice, um, physical hardship, emotional torment, who knows. But he thinks it's reasonable that God should say yes to his prayers. You know what that feels like. You pray a prayer you think is reasonable, and you don't get a yes. It's hard. It's particularly hard when the stakes are high, as they were for David. He's confused. He doesn't know what to think. He doesn't know what to do next. His mind is racing, if you will. David also, in honesty to God, also points out to God, Lord, my enemies are exalted, or my enemy, singular, um, in this case, uh, although he says uh, plural, uh, makes it plural in in verse 4. My enemy, my enemies are exalting over me. This is not good, is essentially what David is saying to the Lord. I'm being humiliated by my enemies because you haven't granted me deliverance. Now, he doesn't, he's not accusing God here, but the fact is, that's why the enemies are exalting over him, because of David's, shall we say, afflicted state. And this humiliation that he's experiencing as the king of Israel, although we don't know for sure if he is uh, officially the king yet, he's the king designate, uh, if he isn't the king already at this point in time, as he writes, but he's humiliated. The God's anointed is humiliated. And that's not pleasant. His enemies' taunts are probably tempting him to doubt, perhaps, perhaps, God's justice. God, this is not fair. So, you can see from uh, the things that I've highlighted here in the last few minutes that David is speaking very frankly with God about his circumstances. And through this psalm and others like it, God is inviting you, indeed encouraging and perhaps even requiring you, to be honest with him and frank with him as well. Allah David. You're to be honest about your circumstances, the way things are, and you are also to be honest with God about the way you are feeling. Yes, the way you are feeling. David uh, told God in verse 2 of the psalm that he was filled with sorrow all the day. He's having a rough time of it. And it is very, very unpleasant. It is sorrowful. It is grievous to him. It is It pains him what he is going through. His emotions are like the waves of the North Atlantic in the midst of a violent storm, churning wildly to and fro. I've been in the North Atlantic in a violent storm in northern Norway, and it is violent. (laughs) And his emotions are like this. He's filled with anguish, not just over the affliction itself, oh yes, over that, but also, again, as I pointed out, um, his sorrows are compounded by the fact that God has not responded, or seemingly so, to his 
uh, troubles as he had expected God to respond. He expected to be granted relief, at least some relief from his troubles, from his affliction. But so far, none is in sight. At least not at the point of the writing of the psalm, or the beginning of the psalm, I should say. He sees nothing but despair in his heart. Feels nothing but despair. He felt as if, it's as if um, the great patriarch of heaven had closed the door in his face and turned the lights out and gone to bed, leaving him standing out in a cold rain at night. God, why aren't you letting me in? Why aren't you helping me? Is how he feels. He's on the verge, it seems, of giving up hope that God would deliver him from his affliction. Have you ever felt that way? Are you feeling that way now? You see, there's nothing wrong. Indeed, there's everything right about being perfectly honest with God about what you are feeling, so long as you do it the proper way. It's perfectly appropriate to be honest, fully honest with God. And that, the fact that God had this psalm included in the Psalter, is proof that God wants you to be honest with him. To not withhold, if you will, how you're feeling. David is painfully frank with God. How long, O Lord? Wilt thou forget me forever? That's pretty bold language. That's how he feels. God has forgotten him. At least that's how he feels. And so, he tells this to God. How things look from his perspective. And how, um, and so he's being very frank. And frankness with God is not a problem. What is the problem are the sinful attitudes that often accompany frankness with God when we are in the crucible. It is awfully tempting in the midst of painful circumstances, difficult circumstances, to begin to question God's love for you or his people, to question his goodness, to question his faithfulness to his promises, to question his wisdom in the way that he is dealing with you, to subtly impugn his motives for dealing with you in the way that he is, as if somehow God maybe is toying with you. It's evil to think that or suggest it even more so. We must avoid these sinful attitudes at all costs when we are laying our cards out on the table before God in prayer. Yes, be frank. Yes, be honest. But do it reverentially. Do it respectfully, 
with a non-accusatory tone in your voice or and in your heart. And with faith in your heart. And the best way I can think of uh, to do this in in the in the hard times when you're pressed, hard pressed by your circumstances, perhaps you are now, the best way to avoid to be frank, but to avoid being improperly frank in terms of with the attitudes, uh, is to regularly remind yourself in your times of prayer, especially, but also uh, when you're not specifically in prayer, to remind yourself of who God is. What you know is true about God in terms of his attributes. That he is always loving to his people. He never will stop loving you if you are his child, if you are trusting in Jesus alone to save you. He can't be anything but good. He is the personification of wisdom. Everything that he does is always wise. He is always faithful and true to his word. He can't not be. He would never toy with you. He would never be uh, capricious in his dealings with you. And others, and he is all powerful. He can get it. He can get everything done just like that. And if he isn't doing it just like that, there's wisdom in that choice of his to tell you wait or no. But you, you see, we have to focus on God. We have to take our mind off the circumstances and go, wait a minute, what do I know is true about God? And that will help you to steer away from improper attitudes that you might otherwise have when you're telling God, this is the way I feel, Lord. This really is hard. I'm depressed or whatever it might be. We need to couple our honesty with reverence and with faith. But not just with reverence, not just with respect, but as I've already alluded to just there, your honesty with God must also be accompanied by faith. And by that I mean an active faith. And this is the second part, second point in the sermon You and I need to continually trust God in the midst of our trials. David, believe it or not, imperfectly, but David was really doing that even as he was praying this rather bold prayer. You say, how how is that true? I mean, it's very, it's pretty in your face kind of bold. Um, Is he trusting God? Because of the way he is uh, speaking here? Well, here's how you can know that uh, there is real faith in there, even though it's being tested. He addresses his prayer to God. To the Lord. To Yahweh. How long, O Lord? He's talking to God. He knows God is listening. Otherwise, he wouldn't be talking to him. Consider and answer me, O Lord, he's addressing the Almighty. And that the fact that he is doing that is an expression of genuine faith. Shaken faith, yes, perhaps, but genuine faith. Even though that faith is under siege by his circumstances and the pressures he's feeling. The fact that David is trusting God 
albeit perhaps a struggle to do so, is also evident from something else that he says when he addresses God. He doesn't only address God, but he calls him in verse 3, my God. You belong to me. You are my God. You see, what he is alluding to there is the covenant faithfulness, the covenant loyalty and love, the loving kindness, as the New American Standard regularly translates it, of God for him. A loving kindness that flows through the covenant mediator who hadn't yet come in time and space, but whom God had promised repeatedly uh, to David uh, as uh, on numerous occasions, certainly in the writing of Psalm 22 and elsewhere. He knew, David knew, that my hope is in the Messiah, that that's where my life is. That is where my, uh, that, that's where my reconciliation with God and God's favor to me Emanates. It emanates from that Messiah who is yet to come, who will, uh, through what he does, uh, bring about, has brought about this good relationship between me and God, that he is my father. And again, even though in time and space it hadn't happened, the effects of it were still being known by David a thousand years before David was, uh, Jesus was born. Because God isn't bound by time. And so he understood God is, has made a covenant with his anointed, ultimately with the Messiah, the, uh, who would come a thousand years later, but also indirectly with him, Jesus, uh, with David, who was God's anointed in a, in a provisional, approximate sense. And God keeps his word. He's my God. He's still my God, even though he's letting this happen to me, is essentially what David is saying there. And David is trusting in, when he comes to the end of his, of his prayer, he is finally, as he's proceeding through the prayer and writing this down, he comes to a point of renewed trust and confidence in the Lord. Verse 5, but I have trusted, or could even be translated, I am trusting in Thy loving kindness. My heart shall rejoice in thy salvation. You see, he's trusting in, again, that that covenant love, that love that flows from that uh, eternal covenant that God the Father made with God the Son and in him with all uh, his chosen ones down through the ages. And he knew that God loved him, and it, and it was God love, so it was infinite love. And he knew that it was a result of his trust in the greater son of David, his descendant, off in the distance, on the, on the uh, timeline of history. And he understood that God loves me still, even though he hasn't said yes just yet, and maybe we'll say no to my prayer for deliverance from this affliction, he still loves me and loves me with indescribable love. And it was a love, a covenantal love, that made David confident that God would be, to use his words there in verse 6, deal bountifully with me in the future just as he has already in the past. 
He says, I will sing. And there he's in the future. I will sing to the Lord because, why will he sing to the Lord? Because he has dealt bountifully with me. It's, he's saying, he has in my past. And when I sing for to the Lord in the future, he will have dealt bountifully with me with respect to this situation that I'm dealing with now. So you see, he is trusting. He's As he's moving through the psalm, he's regaining perspective on things. And his trust is being renewed. And that trust in God is manifesting itself in this prayer. He prays, back to verses 3 and 4 for a moment, he prays, for a reversal of his situation after addressing the Lord, he describes he, descri- he described his uh, situation uh, uh, t- uh, obliquely in verses one and two, and then he prays for deliverance from it. Lord, answer, consider, and answer me, O Lord, enlighten my eyes. He says, um, and he so he, st- he says he implores him first of all to consider him. Uh, in the first part of verse 3 there, consider me, Lord. In other words, Lord, would you please look favorably on me uh, once again? Um, again, his faith is building here. Um, uh, and so he's in the midst of uh, his praying. Would you please look favorably upon me once again? Look upon me. Cause your face to be directed toward me, your gracious face and your gracious smile, as it were. In times of uh, sickness and grief, one's eyes were said to be dull and heavy. Paul, uh, David says, enlighten my eyes, as uh, in verse 3. Enlighten my eyes. Uh, so in times of health and joy, one's eyes would be described as bright and sparkling. So that's what David is referring to. Would you please, Lord, restore the well-being of my body and my soul? I need my eyes to sparkle afresh, if you will. I need that glimmer of joy that is currently missing in my life. And he prays along with that, that uh, his and God's enemies might not mock the Lord or his anointed, David, any longer. And this prayer that he's praying here, enlighten my eyes, consider me, enlighten my eyes, That prayer, an affirmative answer to that prayer, a yes to that prayer, which hasn't come yet, it doesn't need an affirmative answer to that prayer in order uh, that brings about a change in David's circumstances necessarily. See what I'm saying? So God can still consider him. God can still enlighten his eyes and yours and mine, of course, without necessarily changing the circumstances that are pressing upon us. Now, he may, uh, and we can pray for that, but that's when we need to couch it with, Lord, if it would please you, if it's according to your will. But either way, would you please enlighten my eyes? Would you please restore the joy that is missing? Would you please restore the sense of well-being to my soul and perhaps to my body if he was being physically afflicted as well? And so he is he is persevering in prayer. He has been praying. He's continuing to pray. And now with greater confidence as the psalm closes. But this perseverance's prayer during his trial um, is 
um, and waiting on God to answer one way or the other uh, is something, of course, that you and I need to do. Uh, Jesus himself makes it uh, clear in a number of places in the scriptures that we need to persevere in uh, in prayer, one of which is uh, Luke chapter 11, verses 5 through 10. And he, Jesus, said to them, again, this is Luke 11, starting in verse 5, And he said to them, Suppose one of you have a friend, and shall go to him at midnight, and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has come to me from a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And from inside, he, the friend, shall answer and say, Do not bother me. The door has already been shut, and my children are in iron bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his perseverance, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. And Jesus goes on and says, And I say to you, ask, and it shall be given to you. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And he who seeks, finds. And to him who knocks, it shall be opened. Of course, this parable, and that's what it is that Jesus uh, suggests here, the only thing that we can are supposed to take from this parable in terms of an analogy with God is not the... Uh, sense of bother that the friend who was in bed expressed, that certainly isn't the way God acts towards us. That's not the element of the parable that we were supposed to say, that's the way God is, or that's, that's the point that applies to this situation. It's the persistence of the friend who was in need, who went to the other friend who was not very considerate. The, the needy friend and his persistence that brought about the end that he uh, desired, that's the part that we're to focus on and that Jesus wants us to focus on uh, and that ca- requires us, calls on us to pray. Keep praying. So, we want this virus to end. We want our lives to return to normal. Most of us are sick of staring at the four walls of the house. We can keep praying, Lord, please. And by the way, I would suggest to you that uh, fasting is one of the uh, things that the Westminster divines, and, and because Scripture calls us to consider fasting in times like this, when there are national crises. This is arguably a national crisis. Perhaps we, as individuals, and maybe even as a congregation, ought to be fasting as we're praying, that God would deliver our land and the church from this affliction. Um, But my point is, we need to go to God and keep going to God, telling him how we're feeling, telling him that we uh, are low and discouraged and uh, stir-crazy, if that's what's going on, but also saying, um, and Lord, would you please deliver, but would you please do it um, in a way that glorifies you and help me to be okay with however that prayer needs to be answered. But we need to persist in praying and praying the right way with honesty and with trust uh, in our hearts, in God's goodness, his covenant faithfulness, his love for us. None of what I have said applies to you if you are not trusting in Jesus alone right now. You're uh, an enemy of God 
If you have never trusted in the Jesus of the Bible, who is fully God and fully man and the only Savior of sinners, the only way that a person can avoid going to hell, if you've not trusted in him and him alone, uh, be your Savior and your King, because that's what he is, and that's how one receives him. If you've not done that, you're on the road to eternal destruction at the hand of God forevermore. And God is not your friend. He is not your father. He is your enemy, your arch enemy, and you are his. But that can change just like that. If you understand the peril that you're in, if you understand that Jesus and believe that Jesus is the only hope of sinners and that you uh, deserve hell, but you can go to heaven if you flee to him uh, and bow the knee to him in your heart. If you do that, right now you can immediately become the king. You can immediately become one who is heaven-bound and uh, can rejoice and be at peace in the midst of turmoil in this life, but only if you have Christ. So if you don't have him and you're listening to me now, please flee to Christ. That's all you need to hear from this sermon. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this passage. We thank you for the reminder of uh, our need to be honest with you, but to do it in a way that uh, that uh, uh, keeps at the of our thinking that this is God, the God of the universe we are talking to, uh, and that we would be uh, reverent and respectful even as we pour our hearts out to you in honesty. And Lord, we ask that you would help us to do that, uh, that you would forgive us for times when we have prayed to you in ways that were inappropriate, that were disrespectful. And we pray that you would help us to pray with greater faith, uh, that you would strengthen our faith, that you would strengthen our ability to weather the storm faithfully uh, that you have providentially brought into our lives now or in the future. And we pray that we would uh, look to you and remember who you are and that as we do that, Holy Spirit, you would calm our hearts. You would give us contentment, that you would uh, give us the strength to um, be patient and to persevere in the midst of the trial until you deliver us uh, from them. Even if that deliverance doesn't come until the day we leave this world. Would you please help us to persist in trusting you? And we thank you that we are in indescribably good hands, uh, that your, your providential dealings with us are always right, are always wise, are always good, and are always loving. And we can trust that and believe that always. Thank you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Receive now God's blessing. <clears throat> The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen.